This is Globe Publications. Our records show you did not return your free volume of the Encyclopedia of Weather. So we'll be sending you the remaining 29 volumes. You'll be billed accordingly. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I remain Nathan Paletta. And I remain Epidiah Ravishaw. Uh, our regular listeners will already know which episode we are talking about uh, this week. But Epi, what have what have we brought to the table uh, this time? Uh, so this episode uh, very aptly is titled Second Chance. This is uh, the third and final uh, Gandalf Fitch episode mm-hmm. on the Rockford Files. And if you weren't listening to last week's episode, uh, we decided to do this one because... To our surprise, I think. I don't think either one of us remembered going into the previous episode uh, that uh, Gandalf was something of the villain. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we remember of Gandhi is from the Polish wedding and this episode, I think. I think are the things that I took away. So we wanted to watch this episode uh, and compare and contrast the two. Uh, But we should probably do content warnings even though this episode itself doesn't feature them, we will probably reference the previous episode, which has uh, domestic violence issues and, and whatnot. So, yeah, that episode. Um, so that was uh, the Hammer of C Block, uh, yes. which is our last uh, episode. In that, we discover the backstory of Gandhi, uh, played by, I'd say, generally delightfully played uh, by Isaac Hayes, mm-hmm. even though he's uh, in a problematic character, at least in that episode, uh, we do learn that he uh, emotionally and physically abused his uh, girlfriend and and she took her own life specifically mm-hmm. because of what he, of her experience with him. Yes. That's the content that we got more into in that episode and that we will be referencing here, though this episode has a much, much more standard Rockford Files tone of uh treating you know like most of these episodes have violence in them uh we usually don't really talk about it as a content issue because that's kind of the table stakes of this this show uh so it's more on that level we're working off of a hypothesis here Mm -hmm. that uh the hammer of block c uh was probably meant to be a one-off um i don't know if we confirmed that or not but uh yeah i wasn't able to find anything in particular uh one way or the other about that and then uh having seen the chemistry between rockford and gandy uh they decided to do a couple more episodes in fact they decided to do a backdoor pilot with um just another Polish. and so party. that's with uh, another character uh marcus uh forget the full name um another pi uh who is kind of on the the extreme end of the rockford spectrum where he's kind of more in the middle between someone who's totally on the up and up and someone who's a total scam artist. Yeah. Uh, Gabby uh, is more of the total scam artist. And so we see the adventures of Gabby and Gandhi in that episode. Uh, to follow through on that hypothesis, I think what we're going to see um, is this dark content from the original episode pretty much ignored. Like mm-hmm. not entirely, but pretty much ignored or swept aside so that they can just have a character that has that chemistry uh, without um, horrendous baggage. Right. And we're going to get into a little bit about how, how that works. I yeah. Think. And so this is the same writer as The Hammer of Seablock. So Gordon Dawson okay. wrote that episode introducing Gandhi and wrote this episode. So 
if there is any connective tissue, there is at least the same writer. Yeah. Uh, this episode is it is episode four of season four. So we also have a uh, three season progression in terms of like the overall show aesthetic. Yeah. This is so season four is definitely the more is where where the show starts taking more risks with its storytelling. You know, it got some Emmys and, and such from season three. Um, they had a steady relationship with the production company and with Universal. And this is where uh, we start to get some like just more more dramatic, more outsized, weirder episodes uh, is, is kind of one of my ongoing theses. This isn't particularly one of those, but the kind of sensibility of it being a little more, I don't know, it's a little more funky, right? Like yeah. overall, like also with the style, what people are wearing and it's about the music industry. So like yeah. there's a lot of elements um, and specifically uh, 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 black musicians um, in, you know, mid seventies performance mm-hmm. venues. So there's this, this is a not nearly as gritty as the hammer of C block. This episode is directed by Reza Batty, uh, who is a, an extremely prolific um, TV director, among other things. Uh, we have not done any of his Rockford Files episodes yet. This is the first of his seven um, that he directed for this show. But over his career, he directed over 430 episodes of television. Wow. <laughs> which is pretty fantastic. Uh, and he was also a title designer, and he designed the, the titles for Mary Tyler Moore and Hawaii Five-0, uh, including the, like, iconic uh, oh. uh, wave swirl. Like, nice. that was him. He did the cinematography and, uh, and design for that title sequence. Um, so, interesting guy. Once uh, you dig into into the, disc, the, the biography and discography. Uh, also, directed eight episodes of The Incredible Hulk. So, you've probably seen, seen his work over there, Epi. I'm looking him up now to see... Which episodes? Because I, I need to know. <laughs> Someone, I saw a, uh, you know, some comments on this episode. Six million dollar man. Oh yeah, he's all over the place. Um, in a comment about this episode, uh, someone mentioned the episode really has a deft hand with balancing humor and humor and violence or humor and drama uh, in the sense of like dramatic danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's pretty apt. It's It goes back and forth in a very natural way. Cause there is a yeah. lot of like physical danger in this episode, but it's also much funnier than <laughs> the hammer of C block in a very intentional way. The $6 million man that he, he directed is the very next one on my queue to watch. Nice. So uh, I should say the first one I recognized on the list. There are many. <laughs> if you watch fairly to very popular show from the seventies or eighties, you have yes. probably seen, uh, seen his work. Um, or 90s. He directed a bunch of DS9, Sliders, Baywatch, etc. In the heat of the night. Okay, <laughs> back to the Rockford Files. When we need a new project, uh, we'll yes. go to our 430 episode project uh, on the <laughs> directing career of uh, of Reza Badiyi. I I apologize if I am butchering that. Um, speaking of apologies, I don't know if that's a good segue. Epi. Uh, yes. You make no apologies for uh, for paying attention to the preview montage right. of these episodes. So go ahead and tell us what stood out to you. Uh, okay, well, there's lots of good 
classic things going on here. Uh, we've got Rockford not wanting to work, particularly not wanting to work <laughs> with Gandhi. I know in my in my notes here, I'm like, oh, it's one of my favorite Warwicks because uh, <laughs> we're going to have Dion Warwick in here. Mm-hmm. My other favorite being Warwick Davis. Uh, we are going to get a good con uh, where he's going to be Zach Lyons Jr. Uh, or Zachary Lyons Jr. You can call him mm-hmm. Jack, Zach, everyone else does. <laughs> But I think the thing that stuck out the most to me here is what I noted down as a mild firebird wreck because (laughs) I didn't know what actually happens. And what actually happens is so much more awesome than this. Yep. So I was like, oh, okay, we're going to get a little mild. But when we get to this moment, I'm going to put it in my top 10 car moments from the Rockford Files. It's a good one. And it's we haven't had a really good car episode in a while. Yeah. So that definitely jumped out to me as well uh, in the episode. In the preview montage, I was like, drama with the car. Yep. Um, or as I say in my notes, dramatic car incident. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to 200 a Day. This podcast is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our patrons at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you're digging the show and want to help us keep on making it, you can join them for just $1 an episode. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at conventions east of the Mississippi. See where to find him at Jim Likes Games on Twitter. Shane Liebling. If you play games online, you should check out his free dice rolling app, Roll For Your Party, at rollforyour.party. Kevin Lovecraft. Hear him on the RPG Actual Play podcast, the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars, over at misdirectedmark.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, and Dave P. And finally, big thanks to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter, at Richard Haddam. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And check out patreon.com slash 200 today to see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. Well, we start our episode at the state penitentiary where a mustached black man um, is being let out of jail. Of, of course, coming from the last episode, I assumed that we are uh, coming into Gandhi getting out of jail for something. Mm-hmm. But as we get in closer, it is clearly not Gandhi. This guy's name is Joe, Joe Moran. Yes. Who is um, played by Tony Burton, who was the corner guy in Rocky. Oh, nice. Uh, I mean, he's been in tons of stuff, but that is that that is the where you would know him from on uh, IMDb. I have just now finished every single Rocky movie. We did a watch through and we're about to start the Creed ones, uh, although I have already seen the Creeds, but I didn't did not recognize him as the corner guy. Oh, OK. Well, that's on me. In real life, he also was a heavyweight boxer. So Joe Moran is uh, coming out of the slammer. He is met by a by, by a fancy limo. So we immediately know that there's a villain in there yeah. by the law of uh, Rockford car appearances. So he is greeted by a Mr. Shapiro in this fancy car. I do want to say something about Mr. Shapiro here. Mr. Shapiro is played by the actor Malachi Throne. I just want to say that name, Malachi Throne. That is an amazing name. I, I saw that name come up on the title, the title sequence just before this, right? Like they, they give you like some of the characters. But I was like, that name is awesome. And then the moment I saw Mr. Shapiro mm-hmm. with his goatee <laughs> and in the car, I'm like, if this is not Malachi Throne... 
I am quitting 200 a day. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, he was indeed Malachi Throne. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, he doesn't get nearly as cool a name in the episode. He's uh, one of one of the many Rockford villains that seems like he's been in other Rockford Files uh, episodes, but he has <laughs> not. This is only his only appearance here. Uh, he is a 60s and 70s character actor. Yeah. Perhaps he will be recognized by some from that and then he's you know continued working all the way through the the early 2000s so another prolific working actor he is extremely slimy here yeah he makes for a good villain moran uh we'll call him joe for the most part so joe uh tells shapiro that everything went according to plan and he just needs a couple more days to get everything wired which uh but in context uh you know just to get things set whatever these things are. He asks Shapiro for a ride and Shapiro tells him to take the bus. (laughs) There's some kind of ominous villainous thing going on between these two. Status play Mm -hmm. as well. Like he's, he's definitely putting himself up at the top. We then go to Jim's trailer where Angel is trying to get him to invest in a scheme to, uh, to take a cut of little kids selling carnations on street corners or something like that. <laughs> as soon as we cut into this, I was like, all right, Epi is going to feel good about this episode because we get yes. an angel appearance. Oh, that's a good one, too. I, I, I love the pettiness of this scam. It's um, Dickensian, <laughs> practically. Like mm-hmm. it's, he's looking for money from Jim to buy flowers to give to kids to sell on street corners so he can pull in 80% of the profit. <laughs> but the kids get to keep a dime a bunch mm-hmm. the phone rings and jim answers wilson residence so we know he's uh in some some yeah. money trouble probably <laughs> and uh sure enough on the other end of the of the phone is gandalf fitch they start off with some some quips about jim you know trying to to dodge creditors but gandy says that if if money is his problem he'll solve it right <laughs> gandy looking good um, so when he's first introduced, a lot is made of how, uh, out of time he is. Uh, so he spent 20 years in jail and mm-hmm. when he comes out, he has like gray in his beard and yeah. he kind of, I think, plays the character as, you know, a little slumped and, and, you know, slow moving. I feel like here, and then I don't really remember that from, from just another Polish wedding. And then here, I think he, he looks as old as Isaac Hayes was at the time right like yeah yeah he's not played up to to seem particularly uh aged which means i feel like coming off of last episode it's like oh gandy's looking good yeah um he's met this girl her name is theta theta best she's a great singer he says if if, uh if money is rockford's problem he'll solve it all he'll need is 500 dollars from jim (laughs) because uh She's so good, he wants to cut a demo of her singing. And, of course, uh, when record companies hear this demo, they will be head over heels, ready to sign this woman. He has saved up two grand of his own and just needs 500 more dollars to cut this demo. Jim begs off. He does not have the money. Um, and through, through another set of back and forth, it's like, no, I seriously, like, really do not have the money. Completely tapped out. Um but Gandhi invites him to, to come down and hear her sing, and he'll buy the drinks, because Jim should meet her at the very least. Because he's going to invest in her, obviously. Right. 
And the cherry on top of this scene is that Angel uh, doesn't know who Gandhi is. <laughs> I forget the lines, but Angel is is established. This is important later. Yes. <laughs> Angel is established as not uh, being familiar with Gandhi. Uh, I love because the way Angel presents this, he's like, two grand? Who's Gandhi? There, there's money. In, he hears that there's money involved. At the Mercury Lounge. Uh, so we have... Uh, Dionne Warwick's uh, credit coming up over her as she's singing on the little stage, which is a nice little touch. Uh, when we get these celebrities in the show, we want to make sure that people know <laughs> what's happening. Yes. This scene is actually pretty, kind of a, a, really starts the weaving of these tonal threads of kind of humor and, and threat. Gandhi and Rockford uh, take a, a, a seat at a table, kind of right up by the stage. Uh, Joe Moran comes in in uh, a pretty fancy looking suit, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Orders straight bourbon at the bar and then just like stares at her semi-menacingly. Yeah. And then they do this effect where as she's singing, uh, the ambient noise gets pumped up so that it's like, I mean, it kind of sounds like the volume just gets turned up, right? Like it's not very natural, yeah, yeah. but the effect is to, to show us that there's a, a table of guys who are laughing and telling stories and not paying attention to her and drowning her out with their antics. Gandhi goes over to them to quiet them down or he'll throw them out. There are a lot of great Rockford Files lines, one-liners in this episode. Yeah. Here, one of the guys says, hey, hey, this guy wants to be an oil slick on dry land. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. No, I have no idea. <laughs> and Gandhi, oh. we expect him to just start throwing punches. But what he does is he leans in real close. And then we see that he has his foot on top of the foot of the other guy. And he leans all of his weight onto it as he's telling them to, you know, quiet down and play nice. And the look of suppressed pain on the guy's face uh, tells us that he is going to do what Gandhi says. The intimidation through footwork... I I don't know what it is. I think it might be the, just the the style of the shoe and everything. Mm -hmm. This just feels so – like if you just showed me the shot of the feet, I would be like, that's from a Rockford Files episode. So that's, <laughs> that is mm -hmm. somebody working someone over in a Rockford Files episode. Um, but also like one of the things that I like about this, uh, you were talking about like the, the quality of the, the sound as it, it – it's – to me, it's ambiguous whether these people – are a problem or Gandhi is deciding that mm. they're a problem, right? right? Like he's really into the singer. Mm -hmm. So he's intimidating everyone in the bar to pay attention. <clears throat> like I couldn't tell which way this right. yeah. was supposed to play. And I like that. Like, I'm not complaining that I couldn't tell, but it was just like, no, it's, it's nice that it's ambiguous. Yes. Cause we're going to find out in a few moments that Gandhi has something of an official position in mm -hmm. this bar. And then the other thing is, and this is going to play with me until the, near the end of the episode here. I don't know the crime yet. Mm -hmm. Right. I know that, um, Joe has gotten out of prison and Mr. Shapiro has work for him mm -hmm. and it's all very menacing, but none of it is. We don't know what it's about. Yeah. Nobody has said, we're going to do this illegal thing. Mm -hmm. And then as far as we know, Joe just went straight to this bar to watch her. So I think, oh, she's wrapped up in it. And she is, but not in the way that I'm trying to figure out in my brain right now. And I, and I like this. Yeah. All right. I'm excited to see where this goes. Yes. There's a little moment when Gandhi comes back to the table where he like, uh, where he puts out Jim's cigarette in one of the fleeting 
Jim smokes a cigarette moments, which don't come up that often. No. I don't think there's any particular character association with Jim smoking cigarettes. Just in some episodes, he does sometimes, but yes. not super often. <laughs> So it's like, it's even this moment where Gandhi's like, he's confident enough with Jim to just take the cigarette out of his hand and yeah. put it out <laughs> in the ashtray, which in context, again, is like, is this is this keeping him from seeing the clearest view possible of Theta right. or something like that? Yes. Towards the end of the scene, um, there's, there's a scuffle by the pool table and these guys start falling over themselves and Gandhi just goes over and just with his with his massiveness, just shoves until everyone gets pushed out of the door and out of the bar. There's a casualness to everyone else in the bar about this. So this is clearly This is normal. Thing. Yeah, yeah, this is this just what just happens. happens. And Jim yeah. has a line where he's like, real classy place here or something like that. Yeah. In fact, going into it, he was like, there, I don't remember where it was. It's like San Pedro, I think. Yeah, he's like, there's no, you know, nice places down there. This is an episode that uses... A lot of visual language. Yeah. Uses, uses visual language to reference and contextualize the story in the racial community in yeah. which it is placed. Uh, it's not like a big issue. Like, we're going to talk about crime and, you know, in the African-American community or something like that. But most of the people, not everyone, but like most of the people in this bar are black. Most of the principals are black. Right. Uh, overall, the episode is contextualizing what's happening in you know in the black community yeah. for the most part uh theta finishes her set and joins gandhi and jim uh at the bar joe asks who gandhi is so he doesn't know by sight um you know is answered and uh tip looks like he tips the bartender pretty big um for said information and then he leaves at the table we get some some uh expository dialogue um Gandhi has appointed himself uh, Theta's manager. Um, <laughs> apparently, two weeks after they met is when he he yeah. decided that he was going to manage her music career. <laughs> he he basically lays out his vision, which is they'll they'll cut this demo and then he'll make people listen to it, and <laughs> it's like and then he'll make the DJs play it. It's just like Gandhi to muscle a song onto the charts, which I think. I think uh, Jim has a line to that effect. Like, you can't do that. That's not possible. Theta, uh, you know, downplays it a little bit, says that she's being a realist. Mm -hmm. You don't just cut a demo and magically you're the biggest star in the world. And Gandhi says that he doesn't... Uh, so she says that she's being a realist and he's like, don't put yourself down. Like, you're putting yourself down all the time. You're great. Uh, and this is, you know, I'm looking out for this, right? Like, yeah. what is... Because the context coming into this episode is... Uh, Gandhi was extremely bad at his former relationship. Yeah. The plot of that episode revolves around him being like, I did not kill her. I need to find out who killed her. His right. former girlfriend for, for whom's murder he went to prison. Uh, yeah. and then it turns out she killed herself because he drove, drove her to it. So he lost the, like that one thing he was holding on to about their relationship and about yeah. himself. So it's like, all right, let's see what Gandhi's new relationship is all about. Uh, yeah. In light of the previous episode, um, this part, like, I think in my notes, there's a moment here where I'm like, oh, I'm already sympathetic to him. Right. I kind of, and what I want to view this as, and again, so this is, we're getting into headcanon, right? Yeah. Of like, because in real life, these were separated by multiple years, and there's probably not this kind of thought put into this character, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm like, okay, he's being very complimentary, 
very positive. He's not over overwhelming her. He's not being physical. You know, right. he's expressing affection appropriately. He seems genuine. Is this the Gandhi apology to her? Uh, yeah. You know, like emotionally, like he knows what he did. He knows it was wrong. And now he behaves differently. Uh, I would like to believe that that invisible that, that there was that invisible progression between these two episodes. Um, that said, uh, this scene ends with another fight, landing two guys by the table on the floor, and Gandhi goes to clear them out. And this is when Jim remarks that this is a, this is a nice spot. <laughs> yes. Gandhi and Theta are then leaving the bar at the end of the night. Joe Moran comes out of nowhere with a two-by-four and hits Gandhi in the back of the head. <laughs> Clearly, Theta recognizes him. She is uh, startled, but not like frightened necessarily Mm -hmm. joe tells her to get in the car and they peel off leaving gandy crumpled uh unconscious in the parking lot poor gandy um so jim is woken up in bed by a phone call classic rockford moment yes (laughs) uh it's gandy of course fate is gone uh he's in her apartment which has been tossed and he says that he needs help bad and then he just hangs up (laughs) Yes. So he does not give Jim a chance to try to uh, weasel out of this one in Theta's apartment. Uh, so we we get some backstory here as Jim is asking Gandy what he knows about her and how they met and all this kind of stuff. And so they have only known each other for a couple of months. Uh, he says that I never asked about her past and she never asked about mine. And so Jim clarifies that he never told her that he was in jail. Right. So. Okay, let's talk about this moment because this is the this is the weird moment for me. Or I shouldn't say weird moment. I think this moment definitively tells us that they're they're going to ignore the vital bit in that first episode because Jim says, "Why hide that? You weren't guilty." Yes. And my notes are, "Jesus, Jim." <laughs> like, yes. If you went to jail for a multitude of crimes that you weren't guilty of, then I can see Jim saying this. But if you went to jail for not being guilty of killing your wife and the reason why you or not your wife, your Mm -hmm. uh, girlfriend or fiance or whatever. And the reason why you're not guilty is because she committed suicide and framed you like you can't. Why would like in a strict legal definition? Yes. But I can understand why you would hide that. Right. And Jim could understand why you would hide that. Like Mm -hmm. it's like not to get all headcanony or anything like that here, but just to like. It seems that this line to me is saying we're not, yeah, we're going to keep the fact that he's an ex-con who went away for something he wasn't guilty of, but we're going to drop the rest of it. Right. And they don't, and in this episode, they never say why he went to jail, right? Like, I don't even think they mention that it's 20 years, Yeah, right? Because that would imply that it was a murder or something. They don't say it was a murder. They don't talk about his former relationship. Like, it's like, he was in jail for something he wasn't guilty of. Moving on. Yeah. So if you watch this episode out of context of the other episodes, right, you like that's the thing about Rockford Files is you generally don't need continuity. You don't need to know what has come before to understand or appreciate each episode. Then what you have here is another ex-con friend of Jim's that uh, that Jim's helping out. And that's it. That's all you need to know. And we're good and we can keep going. Yeah. And in that context, this is a much easier episode to discuss. Right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I forget if we mentioned this in our intro or not, but this is much more what I thought we were getting ourselves into with the last episode. (laughs) Yes, yes. 
Jim does ask how they met. Uh, he bought her used stereo and uh, found out that she was a singer through chatting with her, I suppose, at the time. Mm-hmm. Found out where she was singing. Got a part-time gig bouncing at that bar. And then, uh, as he says, they got tight. Mm-hmm. It looks like, you know, all the um, drawers have been cleaned out and stuff. And if there was anything in them, whoever tossed the place got it or didn't find what they're looking for. But Jim pulls down a cardboard box out of the closet that's all tied up with um, twine just to see what's in it, I guess. Like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. this is valuable. And uh, it's a box of records, uh, you know, like single 45s. Jim hands Gandy one. And we have a nice tight shot on it being credited to Joe and Theta Moran. Yes. Gandhi is seems upset about uh, about this. Um, <laughs> he wants to find this man. And, and Jim has this whole thing. He's like, maybe he's her brother. Maybe they got, you know, maybe he's her husband. Maybe they got divorced. I don't know. You didn't tell her about your past. You know, why should she have t- told you about hers, right? Kind of thing. But he wants to find this man and ask him what the deal was. Uh, Jim says that it, it's a police matter. They should go to the police. Uh, it's a abduction, you know, breaking and entering. Not reporting a crime is a crime, Gandhi. Mm-hmm. So this does touch on the, you know, the racial contextualization. Um, Gandhi says, oh, yeah, and they'll drop everything to find out who hit a black ex-con over the head. Yes. <laughs> and that is all the justification I need for not going to the police. <laughs> so he asked Jim to find her. He was going to ask her to marry him after they cut the demo and says that she would have said yes, too, uh, in a... Uh, callback of sorts to the previous episode we talked about. Jim says that I'm sorry, Gandy, but bird dogs are accessories. Yes. Implying, without really stating, that he doesn't want to turn Gandy onto someone that Gandy is then going to go beat up. Yeah. He follows that line up with uh, freebies are bad policy. And uh, I love it's just like if I get involved in any way, I'm responsible for all the things that happen. I should not be here. I should not be doing this. Right. Uh, it's always fun to watch the episode build up all the reasons why Rockford should walk away and then <laughs> just make sure he doesn't walk away. And in this case, it is because Gandhi offers him that $2,000 that he's been saving up yes. <laughs> uh, to take this case. Uh, Jim has conditions. I mean, that has a lot of money and he needs the money. He is Jim Rockford after all. Yes. He takes it on the condition that they report the kidnapping uh, and that if it turns into a domestic dispute, Jim will be off the case. Yes. He doesn't want to be involved in domestics at all, which, again, may be a reference to some of the earlier stuff or, or not. It's hard to tell. Well, and then here, Gandhi has a line where he says that he hasn't had much love in this rotten life. Yeah. And that really. Yeah. <laughs> like. Uh yeah, again, in context of the previous episode, and I, we will think we'll have less of this to compare as we go through this episode. Yeah. But here, is this alighting his past so that we just move on? Right. Or is this an acknowledgement because his whole thing was that he loved this woman and he wanted to find who killed her? Mm-hmm. And then is this him being a person who has come to terms with the fact that she did not love him. And that is where the, he has not had much love in this rotten, you know, like is this acknowledgement of his past or is this skipping over his past? Yeah. Is it it a rewrite of the past? Yeah. Uh, Or is it like his character's own personal rewrite of the past? At some point we, we can't know. So we can't keep 
hypothesizing about it. But... Right. But th- there's some specific lines that like yeah. pull me back to yeah. that consideration. And this is one of them. It also echoes a line at the end of that episode where I think Rockford says something like this life has been giving you nothing but rotten, rotten luck. And you've been eating the balloon payments or something like that. Right. Yes. Yes. In true Rockford fashion, it has a little bit to do with interest payments. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the poetry of uh, actuaries is what it is. We end the scene with Gandhi saying, find her, Rockfish, find her. <laughs> so Jim, of course, goes and talks to Dennis. Um, so we're at the um, yeah. police station with our good friend, Dennis Becker. Uh, they ran the file on Joe Moran. He has a rap sheet, which it is illegal for Dennis to show a civilian the rap sheet. So Jim says, all right, so just tell me what's on it. Yeah. A perfect encapsulation of the Jim Dennis uh, legal dynamic. What I love about this is the um, Dennis is like, yeah, I can't do this. I can't tell you any of this stuff. And then they just talk until Jim gets enough. Mm -hmm. And then that's good. We got it now. And Dennis doesn't know. I feel like Dennis doesn't know that he's given away the farm anyways. So Joe uh, apparently has been in jail since 1972 on a murder charge. Um, he was married to Theta. Her maiden name is best, but, you know, Theta Moran. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim is doing the math and he's like, how is it possible that he's back out after only five years? Our fourth season uh, is placing us in, in 77. Well, he apparently made parole five days ago. He yells over to another cop, and I think this is how he tells Jim this without, yeah, <laughs> like pretending like he's not telling Jim. He goes, "Hey, Fred, you know you can beat Murder One in five years now. There's a <laughs> second chance program that uh, allows certain certain felons to uh, come back into the workforce." And he mentions that the parole officer for Joe is uh, a man named Arnold Rose, and he cannot give Jim the address. Yeah. Cut to Jim barging into an office looking for <laughs> Arnold Rose. <laughs> so a couple things here. First of all, also in that, they mentioned that he, uh, that Joe Moran, uh, he went to murder for killing a plastics manufacturer. Yes. Which is kind of a random detail. But this is one of those scripts where like, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this story that is 100% narrative convenience. Um, yeah. Which is fine. But it also does a lot of work to give you some seeds that then pay off. Uh, this yeah. is much more of a plot story than character story. Uh, or it is weighted more towards the plot than the last episode. So this little one-off detail uh, does become important later. And then this cut, we don't need to see Jim figuring out where this parole officer works. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he has ways. There are more important things to see in this episode. The hoops that he's given, Dennis is like, I can't give you the address. But he's got a name and a job. Like Mm -hmm. the point A to point B is so obvious at this point that we don't need to, you know, um, yeah, we don't need to see how he he does it or whatever. But like, um, okay, I've been reading a lot of math texts. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of a thing that happens a lot in math texts where they say this equals that, obviously, without taking you through the steps to do it. And it's just tedium or tedious work or whatever. And I appreciate that the the, uh, show like steps over it. But also it's one of the things that I love about Rockford mm-hmm. is that his detective prowess is being able to look someone up in a phone book. It's the obvious just work you have to do to get things done. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jim's cover here uh, is that he has a big opportunity for Joe Moran. He's an A&R man for a record company, and he wants to get Joe back under contract for a new record since he's out of jail. Uh, his parole officer does not want him getting involved with the music business. Um, it's just going to be a nose full of coke and a trip back to the joint. Yes. <laughs> but through this conversation, Jim keeps like finding out a small piece of information and then hammering on it to turn it into a larger piece of information. Well, okay. Okay. You think he's got a better future working with some laundromat? That's okay with me. The um, Shapiro Cleaning Corporation. Is hardly a laundromat, Mr. Lyons. Really? There we go. Yep. And then we have Jim's, uh, uh, James Garner's fantastic delivery of the, of the word. Really? Mm-hmm. This is a very narratively convenient. This guy gets is so offended that Jim would denigrate the work of his parolee that he right. just like, yeah. he's like, oh, obviously, you know about the Shapiro Cleaning Corporation. Like, that'll impress this random music guy. This is not a problem. It was just, uh, let, let, let's keep yeah. going. You know, let's find out the next thing. And it's important the, that Jim knows about Arnold Rose. That comes back later. Yeah, it comes back later, but I expected it to come back even one more time and it did not. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll wait till we learn some more stuff about Shapiro and his cleaning company. So Jim goes to this cleaning company, a building that says Shapiro Linen Supply on it. Yes. Goes into some kind of administrative office. Uh, and now he is a life insurance guy. One of his favorite covers uh, trying to find Joe Moran because there's been a death in the family and Joe is owed some money. We get a greatest hits of Jim Rockford cons here where he has his one-off business card that he shows to the guy and then takes it back off the desk when the guy isn't looking and puts it back in his pocket. I love that. I love that that that, that pays off also. Yes, yes. <laughs> but then uh, Moran's on the night shift, so he can't talk to him now. And so Jim goes into a whole thing about wanting to settle it today. It's his daughter's birthday, and he's all the way up from Phoenix, and he promised he would be back in time. And it's her first birthday since her mother passed away. Yes. And he just, like, lays it on and lays it on until the guy's like, okay, fine. You didn't hear it from me, but he works there at wherever. Another thing that's just gorgeous about this is that we have back-to-back Rockford cons. Again, they have the hallmarks. Like, I have a thing to offer, but I have, like, a time limit and I have a, a, a pressure uh, and now that pressure is also yours because you sympathize with me because you're a working mm-hmm. stiff or whatever. But I love that he didn't stick with the same one. Yeah. He wasn't like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm still this record executive. He's like, oh, no, we're going to go life insurance now. I know. I don't want this one. This is this is a life insurance right. situation. Yes. Yeah. Is- um, as Jim is kind of finishing up his his business, uh, Mr. Shapiro comes out of his inner office he wants to scold this, uh, this this poor clerk about something that he's done. But he did it because it was a fudge that was going to save the company from paying overtime that they owed to someone. And uh, Shapiro's like, oh, okay, that's great. Just as long as the union doesn't get wind of it. Yes. It's just this very frank discussion of some kind of paperwork malfeasance to uh, <laughs> you know cheat some of his employees out of their, their well-earned money. Just doubling down on this villain. Shapiro. Uh, and then he sees Jim and is like, who are you? And Jim's like, oh, I was just leaving. And he walks away. The The business card thing pays off because our clerk says, oh, he was an insurance guy. Oh, I have his card here somewhere. And then just starts looking through the desk trying to find it. But Jim took it. So he cannot find the business card again. There's a, a physical bit here, too, that just before Jim leaves, uh, he 
actually has his arm or his hand on Shapiro. Mm-hmm. I, ju- I just there's something about it that I love. It just feels like just off putting enough that you're just like, well, that was a weird encounter. And then that was it. Right. Like it wasn't. Yeah. Um, Shapiro, of course, is suspicious and watches Jim leaving the warehouse. Call someone named Leonard to get on him and get his story. <laughs> so Jim is is uh, on the road in the Firebird. He gets suckered in by this play where a car pulls around in front of him and then stops in the middle of the road. A guy gets out as if like, oh, there's a problem with the car. Um, and Jim's like, oh. and then the guy comes up like, I'm going to ask you for help. But of course, he is a goon with a gun. Yes. And he just drops into Jim's front seat. Um, Any funny stuff and I'll blow you into next Tuesday. Tells him to follow yes. the car up ahead. So they have some back and forth where he keeps asking him who he is, who he, and then he gets his wallet, asks him who he works for since he's a PI. Jim says that he's working for the FBI as a initial <laughs> play, which is kind of funny. Uh, our our goon uh, says that Mr. Shapiro doesn't like anyone messing with his cons. <laughs> the car he's following has turned into an alleyway. And so Jim sighs and says, okay, okay, you win. And then suddenly accelerates and swerves the car, which is enough to throw his uh, assailant off balance for him to grab his arm and, you know, keep him keep him from shooting the gun. In this motion, he also sideswipes the car in front of him into a pile of boxes and then manages to overpower the goon and kick him out of the open door of the Firebird. <laughs> this is all very exciting, but <laughs> we haven't even started yet. <laughs> So then, of course, he accelerates away from the scene, turns a corner, and oh no, it is a dead end. So what does he do, Epi? There is this glorious J-turn that he pulls off in this alleyway. This is a celebration of the J-turn. Yeah, yeah, this is... (laughs) We have not had a J-turn on the show in what feels like forever. So if you're listening and you don't know what we're talking about, which I can't imagine is true... um. This is yes. the uh, also called the bootlegger's turn made, I'd say made uh, uh, notable by Jim, you know, the J turn. It's describing yes. a J, but it's also Jim Rockford doing it on this show. Uh, <laughs> you're facing one way. You put the car in reverse, accelerate backwards, and then pull on the parking brake and spin the wheel so that you swing 180 degrees around and are then facing in the direction of travel uh, so that you can get out of situations just like this one. So from uh, front right bumper to back left bumper, we have the diagonal of the car, the hypotenuse of the car. That is the widest point in the Mm J-turn. And I think he's got three extra inches in that alleyway. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little cutout that has like another dumpster in it or something. So there's a little bit of width for him to do the the spin part without uh, hitting anything. But the, the camera goes up to an elevated position so you can see the entire maneuver in all of its glory. This is the moment in my notes where I write, holy sh** with two exclamation points. But then right after that, I write with four exclamation points. <laughs> the the car comes up, stops just short of hitting a dumpster, yeah. and then slowly accelerates. And we cut back and we see that Jim is pushing this dumpster in front of him with the car so that it slams into the green car that was uh, 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 his assailant's vehicle, crushing them back into the side of the alley and clearing the way for him to make his escape. And this, my friends, is the scene that I so naively described as 
mild firebird wreck in the preview montage. No, Epi, no. The preview montage did its job by setting your expectations low so that they were exceeded by the quality of this scene. Oh, I love this one so much. So, yes, and uh, that's how Jim Rockford stopped a carjacking. Uh, it's nice to see a J-turn. Yeah, good times. Happy, I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the Information Superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidia, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games, maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the worldwide wrestling, pro wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You, you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Hmm. All right, well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. We have a quick moment with Gandhi at the bar. Uh, he gets a phone call asking for him by name. Um, it's, it's from a record, you know, some, some guy at a record company. Mm-hmm. So Gandhi is very excited to answer this phone as Mr. Fitch. We cut from there. Um, Joe and Theta are at a pawn shop. So this woman is like leaving. She's locking up. So he has to kind of talk her into letting letting him give his his story here, which is that his his wife foolishly lost a pawn ticket for some stereo components. But he wants to, he's ready to get them back. And while he doesn't have the ticket, he has a list of them. So she'll just go check. This whole situation is one where we are seeing that they're not on the same side here. No. Right? Uh, she is there against her will. He is physically dragging her around by the arm. Uh, she's trying not to answer questions. Yeah, she she's a little checked out. There's an interesting thing going on here where he's a threatening guy, but she's not threatened by him. Right? Like, um, right. Yeah. She's uh, deliberately dragging her feet and stalling. Mm -hmm. Like, you know that they're not on the same side. They're not quite. She's being kind of dragged into all of this, Mm -hmm. but she's also somewhat in control of what's happening. Um, Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. I I don't think you're wrong. I think she I think she's doing what she can to be as unhelpful to Joe as possible. Yeah, basically, yeah. But I do think that this is presented as him aggressively dominating her, yeah. you know, what she wants, which is not to be there with him. And cuz I'm looking at for this, I think this part of me thinks like is this a presentation of of this is the old Gandhi. Right. Yeah. 
this is how he behaved. I don't think that's a, I'm not, there's, there's not enough text to say one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Also, he, Joe is not presented as actually caring about Theta, right? Yeah. He's, he needs to get something she has, and that is a pretty qualitative difference. Uh, so maybe I was reading a little too much into it, but, um, whatever. If your earlier assumptions of like they were in on something together, this is clearly yeah. not them being in on something <laughs> together. The speaker, uh, MacGuffin, is is increasingly important. And he says that if the speakers aren't in that pawn shop, he's getting flushed down the tubes and he's going to take her with him. So you see that he's he's acting out of desperation uh, in some regard here. This continues uh, back at the hotel where he's uh, staying. And again, he's roughly dragging Theta around by the arms and getting his key to go up to the room. A, a really nice piece of visual storytelling they go into the elevator yeah and then we see jim pop up from over a newspaper that he was reading in the lounge uh (laughs) keeping an eye on the on the lobby area and overhearing which room he has because he has to get the key from the the counter yeah track down joe moran waiting around to wait for him to get home great he makes a call from the public phone up to the room uh claims to be from uh a new parole officer uh his, his, his parole officer was Arnold Rose, but now he's been turned over and he wants to see Joe right away. There's an interesting moment here. And I think and this happens with multiple characters throughout the episode. But Joe, when he answers the phone and then hears who it is, who claims to be, uh, he, he code switches how he's speaking. Right. Um, he, he drops the, the kind of slang terms, puts on the I am being polite to a white person who has power over me voice. It's a pretty strong shift, and I think it's just natural to these characters in this story, but it happens in many moments throughout this episode. There's some lines from just before where he's talking, like he's telling uh, Theta that, you know, she's down to seeds and stems with me. Like, it's like mm-hmm. clearly pot slang, you know, musician. Yeah. You know, like, like using uh, that as a, uh, yeah. Um, I, I like... Again, we got Rockford putting up pressure like right away. Mm-hmm. You're 20 minutes late. Now you're 19 minutes. Yeah. And this is the last we hear about the, what's his face? The parole guy. The parole officer. I was making the assumption that the parole officer was crooked. Oh. <laughs> because of everything else that was happening. I mean, I'm still at this point watching this grasping at what the actual thing is that's mm-hmm. going on. At first, I thought Theta was the whole thing. And then, no, Theta just knows where these things are. Right. But what are the things? Yeah. It's clear that Shapiro has a bunch of goons. Uh, are they fed to him by Arnold Rose? Or are they, you know, like, it, yeah. Yeah. He has a bunch of, of cons in his employ through this yeah. second chance program. Yeah. There's still lots of mystery here. Uh, Joe says that if Shapiro doesn't get him, the man will. Uh, and so he's going to go to this uh, fake parole officer. But he wants to know what the stereo is. He doesn't believe that Theta doesn't know. Uh, you know, she says that she pawned it. But he's like, I need to know where it is. You're going to tell me. And threatens her uh, if she runs out on him again. Uh, Jim watches him leave, heads up to the room. Theta tells him to go away, but then does let him in once he insists on talking to her. Um, he wants some answers. She immediately asks if Gandhi's okay. Yeah. Take more than a hit on the head to take, uh, take out poor Gandhi. Uh, explains that, uh, Joe's looking for, what tossed her place looking for this pawn ticket to the stereo set. 
and that's what he's you know that's that's what he's after i think jim still smells a bit of a rat in that still seems you know yes yes but why but why is that so important um i kind of skipped over a lot of the actual dialogue here it's 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 good uh we Mm -hmm. kind of get the portrait of theta as someone who as you were saying stands on her own doesn't want to give up anything she doesn't have to and 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 has some pride in yeah herself she's been through a lot and has survived lots of things she kind of wants to get jim to understand that this has nothing to do with him and that it she'll handle her own business right yeah which of course jim is not uh going to just walk away to try and get get more out of her he tells her that gandhi was going to ask her to marry him uh after they cut that record um but She's apparently already married, and she clarifies that technically <laughs> they're not married. Uh, Joe's her ex-husband, but that she can't turn over on him. Mm-hmm. It's just not just not right. Jim says that Gandhi's carrying around a $12 grudge and a $3 hat. Oh, that's such a good line. Uh, and then uses the threat of unleashing Gandhi on Joe to get Theta to, uh, to tell him more. Again, a maneuver that he used many times in the previous episode. You know, like, if you don't tell me what I want to know, I will tell Gandhi where you are, mm-hmm. and he will settle it with violence. <laughs> it's like, oh. We know he's a bad guy, so... Uh. Yeah. Joe and Theta had an off-strip Vegas act. Um, they took some trip uh, where Joe went crazy and killed some plastics guy, which <laughs> does not seem like a satisfactory part of the story. And at the time, I was kind of like... I guess we're just skipping over that. Yeah. But there's a reason why some of this stuff doesn't really add up, I guess, which we'll get it, it to will in add a few up. scenes. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes. Yeah. And, and so she just tried to move on. He went to jail and she's just trying to move on with her life. Here is where I was like, no, Jim, don't, don't do this again. Yeah. But he did it. <laughs> so he says that you're playing the victim. Yeah. You're responsible for your life and everything in it, including stiffing Gandhi and going back to Joe. <sighs> this is not a good look for Rockford. Yeah. I, so this is the thing that does happen every so often in the Rockford Files. We have a character uh, of Rockford who I, I would say he has confidence in his moral footing, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. He, he'll lie to people. All the time. He does it in these cons, uh, but he draws very specific lines and he holds other people responsible for not holding those exact same lines. And mm-hmm. now that, that I think in general is a bit of a character flaw and it's not a character flaw that's explored in the Rockford Files. Mm-hmm. So we're just supposed to kind of take it that Rockford's uh, moral grounding is the, the moral grounding of the show. Right. What Rockford thinks is right is probably right. And where people diverge from his opinions on these things is where they go wrong. Mm-hmm. That has problems. <laughs> like it, We're going to see it like we see it in this episode where uh, he is going to take a stance uh, that either from our position in history no. doesn't look particularly good or in light of the original Gandhi episode really doesn't look good. Right. Uh, thinking about this as not a show that you could pull out of your DVD set and watch at any given time, but as a show that aired on television and then disappeared into the ether, 
you can sit, drop elements uh, that that were previously part of a show without reference to them, right? Right. So again, we could have this situation where they decide we're going to interpret Gandhi this way, which is incongruent with the original episode, but congruent with this episode. And here we go. Hmm. But still, I think even without that, this is not the best look for Rockford. No. So there's two two things here that I want to say, and then we'll move on. The particular reason why this particular line or set of lines makes me cringe is because we just watched that the previous episode where Jim tries to absolve Gandhi of responsibility by saying that it was uh, his partner's fault that she came back to him. She could have chosen not to do that. Yeah. Oh, in the language as we've developed it now, that is very squarely victim blaming an abused person. Right. So that language echoes. It's not the same situation here, Uh, but I think this is a really clear moment where we can see privilege in action in the script as well as in this character. I want to contrast this moment, cast our minds back to uh, one of one of my favorite episodes, um, Quickie Nirvana. Right. It was our episode 20. Um, That episode centers around a uh, this woman uh, uh, Sky, who is on some kind of unending spiritual journey, and she keeps on <laughs> messing up yeah. things. She keeps on messing up the commitments that she makes because she just can't handle having responsibility. And she ends up, you know, partnered with Jim, and there's a whole story, of course. But kind of the emotional heart of that episode is this, is this conversation where Jim takes her to task for not taking responsibility for her actions. Mm-hmm. In that conversation, that felt like it was earned by the character and the story because we'd watched this entire episode of this woman who is white, who is, she's not like rich or anything, but she's in a situation where she can kind of bounce around from place to place, taking advantage of this kind of new age communal living situation who does have problems following through on what she says she's going to do or her intentions. This is the same message, right? Like you had the choice. Like right. You didn't have to do that. You had the choice. But delivered here to a black woman who <laughs> is in a precarious economic situation, who was with a man who clearly is capable of violence and murder. Mm-hmm. Th- these are not equivalent situations. Uh, and the, I think the privilege here is in the script, right? Is in right. Is, yeah. is in writing this as an equivalent situation. And it's not. So... Maybe it's a teachable moment about this kind of thing. Because we, we talk about a lot of times the, the, the conversation about privilege. To illustrate it, you use some very large right. you know, framework so that it's kind of obvious. This is a moment where that really, a, a more subtle moment that is nevertheless, I think, very apparent once you look for it. Uh, and there's also evidence of it in the premise of the episode, right? Because Jim is saying you have, you, you have a choice when even Jim doesn't have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. Like... When it comes to Gandhi, Jim gets steamrolled. He lies to Gandhi. He, you know, like he's he's judging her for things that he himself mm-hmm. also does. But yeah, I am with you on that. All right. Thank you all for allowing me to go on that little journey. Uh, we'll now get back to our episode. <laughs> um, the, the resolution of the scene is that uh, Theta tells Jim to tell Gandhi goodbye. She doesn't want him to be involved with her either. Yeah. And Jim storms off with the muttered imprecations of lousy domestic cases. 
We cut from there to a fantastic shot of Gandhi pulling the top off of a beer sitting on Rockford's couch. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Again, as mentioned in our previous episode, the joy of seeing these period beer cans uh, never, never fails. Yes. Jim comes in already in a mood, of course, uh, and asks how Gandhi got in there. Gandhi had to bust the latch on his bedroom window <laughs> and he tells Gandhi he's going to he is going to get that fixed and he's going to pay for the parts. Um, and then, uh, the scene's so good. Jim then gathers all of his sandwich fixins because he's been out late and he's, uh, I think he's hangry. Yeah. While he kind of angrily runs down what he's learned, uh, for Gandhi, uh, and that he's off the case because it is, uh, as he, as he said, as, as it's become a domestic, uh, affair and Gandhi's like, well, you can't give up now. Uh, he got a call from Pacific Records. And uh, there's a guy there who wants to, who heard the demo tape and wants to cut um, Theta's record. Jim says that he should give it up. Uh, Theta has has left him. She doesn't want him involved. So he is putting his sandwich together while he tells Gandhi this. Gandhi then sighs, nods, and then just punches Jim across the face. Yeah. <laughs> One punch KO, the Gandhi special. Rockfish. And he turns around. Bam. Yeah. That's it. yeah. Just, just like, ah. Uh... He then tenderly tucks Jim onto the couch, uh, puts his coat over him after going through the pockets to find his notebook where he finds the address that Jim had written down for Joe Moran's place. So he takes that, of course, and then he takes Jim's gun out of the cookie jar. Yes. And then as his last thing before he leaves, he takes the sandwich that Jim did not get to eat and takes a big bite of it on his way out the door. What a dick. <laughs> but, like, it's not personal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he clearly cares about Rockford enough to uh, make sure that he wakes up comfortably. He's just hungry after that sucker punch. I mean, what's he going to do? Let that just sit there and yeah, get all not. gross? <laughs> uh. We cut to Jim calling Dennis. He's, uh, you know, keeping his, his hand on his poor, poor aching <laughs> jaw to tell him that Gandhi's going after Joe Moran. But he's too late. Moran was found beaten to death a half hour ago. Yeah. And so now, since Jim called, Fitch is the number one suspect. Dennis says that uh, Theta was not there. He Jim needs to tell him everything he knows or he's going to charge him with aiding and abetting. <laughs> Jim says that, okay, he'll come in to talk about it. Give him about an hour. Of course, Jim never goes to the, <laughs> yes. to the, to the police station. You were talking about the code switching before. Dennis, here on the phone... Suddenly sounds like he cares about Jim. He's like, why don't you come in? Dennis is laying a trap, too. Mm-hmm. He's upset that Jim's situation has once again made things difficult for Dennis at work. And he's like, why don't you come in? We'll take care of it. Dennis knows that Jim is not going to come yes. in and talk about it. Uh, and Jim knows that Dennis knows that. And yet yes. we'll still give him the line <laughs> to cause some false hope. Um we go to the Shapiro building where we have a intimidating bunch of goons uh, in a dimly lit room with Shapiro and Theta um, sitting in a chair. So we go from kind of those humorous scenes uh, yes. to this very threatening, creepy scene. Um, Joe didn't think that she pawned that stereo. So now we know who tried to beat this information yeah. uh, out of Joe and then uh, presumably to death. And that he is inclined to agree. Uh, he creepily like touches her arm and kind of like yeah. rubs her uh. arm while he says that sooner or later she'll tell them the truth. 
about this, uh, what happened to the stereo. I think I used something like 17 or 18 characters to write the word creepy yes. in my notes. This is extremely creepy. At least our villain is being creepy. <laughs> yeah, just... Th- this is making us anxious for Theta. Yeah. We go from this very uh, dark scene to Jim picking the lock to get into her apartment. Uh, he goes in in the dark, stumbles around for a bit, and then turns on the light. And, of course, Gandhi is standing there with his gun. <laughs> And I would say the tone of this quickly goes to one of exasperation. They're both looking for Theta. Jim grabs the gun out of Gandhi's hand. Um, Gandhi says that he didn't kill Joe. He would have. Yeah. But the place was already crawling with cops when he got there. Jim says that. Uh, so something about this doesn't add up. She said that Joe was looking for a pawn ticket for the stereo. But Gandhi, you bought the stereo. So there's no ticket. Uh, and this connects the dots for Jim. Mm-hmm. She was trying to protect you. You know, she didn't want anyone, as she, as he says, she didn't want to send any bummers in Gandhi's direction. Uh, and she was lying this whole time in order to protect Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Clarifies some of the weirdness about that earlier scene and uh, also makes us fear even more for Theta in whatever situation <laughs> she is now. Um, so they theorize that perhaps Joe hid something in it before he went to prison. Don't So, you know, see, see if there's anything in there. As they head out of the apartment, Jim says, hey, Gandy. Gandy turns around and Jim sucker punches Gandy as hard as he can, which sends Gandy staggering a couple steps and hurts Jim's hand. I wrote down these lines. There's some really good lines. Oh, in yeah. Scene. Like just before that, um, I, I, I guess Gandy referred to his sucker punching jim as a little tap mm-hmm. and jim's like little tap i could still hear the ocean which is oh exquisite uh but this one is like oh hey and there's one other thing oh hey there's one other thing you feel better now rockfish this keeps my mind off my headache oh <laughs> Busted his hand on Gandhi's jaw. Ugh. Yeah, it is extremely good. They have taken apart the stereo, and it is mm-hmm. full of counterfeit poker chips and counterfeiting materials for making same, like molds and engraving discs and whatnot. Now we're in a comfortable Rockford zone. <laughs> right. right, yeah. This is exactly the kind of crime that, like... <laughs> Like a needle settling into the groove of a of a demo pressing. Yes. <laughs> we are settling into some comfortable, classic uh, Rockford material. There's counterfeit poker chips. Now we understand why we keep hearing that it's a plastics guy that gets mm-hmm. killed. Because I'm thinking to myself, if I get killed, how do I want people to refer to that crime in the future. <laughs> do they mean, like, you killed some podcaster in Vegas, right? Like, do I want that? Like, what? Iconic role-playing game designer. <laughs> like, what? what is it that I want? Well, you know what it's going to be. The guy who did the Jenga game. Yeah, that's exactly it. But now we'll know it's because I was somehow involved in a Jenga counterfeit scheme. Right. Right? <laughs> Because it was a weird thing for this this man's criminal epitaph to be the plastics guy until you realize, oh, we need plastic for poker chips. 
they refer to him from the rap sheet as a plastics manufacturer. So right. it sounds like he was yes. some kind of legit business that clearly, you know, yeah. was part of the scheme and then they killed him. Uh, there's a noise outside the door. Uh, one of Shapiro's goons comes in with a gun. Uh, Jim jumps him, but then the guy who uh, jumped Jim in his car follows with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Um, and his line, that was a perfectly good automobile you totaled. <laughs> So we have some good, memorable background goons uh, in these two. Uh, Gandhi asks what happened to Theta. You know, she better be okay. And the shotgun goon says that she got what she deserved. Uh, He calls Gandhi a coconut, which I cannot read as anything but a racial slur. Yeah, I... And I know it is in some other contexts, like to this day, uh, in this particular moment that is what it sounds like even if it was not in, even if it was intended to be like one of those like rockfordy yeah. kind of terms uh, like you know gorilla or whatever right right uh but with just a i mean i don't think there's even a trigger for it gandy and jim just jump into action <laughs> a thing about this that's kind of classic rockford is that he is ready to go the moment gandy snaps yeah as soon as gandy moves it's as if rockford clocked everything in the room and is like Something's going to happen, and when that happens, this is what I'm going to do. And he just slides right into it. So it just happens. Yeah. You blink, and they're, they're, they're at it. So they overpower these two goons. Uh, the other one, the, 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 uh, the wimp, if you will, as Gandhi mm-hmm. keeps calling him a wimp, squeals uh, and says that she's in, a, she's in a hamper at the cleaning plant. Oh, God. That is ominous. Like, I... I uh... Well, I'll, I'll bring this up later. Okay. Uh, Jim says that he can't pay him enough. This They have to go to the cops. Yeah. Gandhi still doesn't want to because if this doesn't, you know, if this doesn't go right, they're going to still arrest him for Joe's yeah. murder. Gandhi's not wrong. So this is now in the clearing his name kind of situation. He offers Jim 10% of his 25% of Theta's recording deal. <laughs> and Jim says no. And then our key moment of this episode. I'm paying you to do a job, so stop waffling and punch in. You can't pay me enough to handle this gig. It's a police matter now, and I'll let them deal with it. How about 25% of my 10% of Theta's recording deal? Contract's going to be signed tomorrow. Oh, come on, Gandy. I really need your help, Rockford. Rockford? Yeah, Rockford. Yeah? Uh, and that, that gets him. That's the moment that uh, hooks hooks Jim in for the for the rest of the episode. Is it Chicken Little is a little chicken? Is that the episode with Angel looks at Jim and says, "Because we're friends." Mm-hmm. It's that moment. I am desperate, <laughs> and 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 it cuts through everything. And Jim's like, "Oh yeah." I mean, this is also like Jim can play it up like a victory. Like, oh, you respect me now. You can call right. me Rockford. Uh, but I think it is definitely like to see the character of Gandhi brought to such a low level that he would refer to Rockford by his given name. Right. This is a continuity payoff as well. This is the yes. only time in three episodes that <laughs> yes. uh, that Gandhi refers to him as Rockford and not Rockfish. Um, so if you have even if so, if you watch this one off like that's. It's part of this episode, but if you've watched all of the Gandhi episodes, this hits mm-hmm. with even more like weight. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's nice. They uh, force these goons to take him to the cleaning plant. Jim uh, has has shoved the wimp in the trunk uh, and then opens it to kind of get more information out of him as he cannot take small spaces. So he's desperate. <laughs> He'll say anything to get out of that trunk. 
says that she's in a laundry hamper in the receiving area. And Jim then shuts him back in the trunk. So yes. that's what you get for being a goon. Jim clearly has a plan. I missed exactly the back and forth here. But Jim's plan involves uh, Gandhi, you go get Theta. I will go to, to, to beard the wild Shapiro in his den. Um, and he takes the shotgun with him. Which, in another great moment, this is a thing. This The shotgun motif keeps coming back and uh, will pay off. Cause the, so it's the shotgun that the uh, uh, tough-talking goon originally had on Rockford in the previous scene. Yeah. So now Rockford has that same gun. And we go into the facility and head up to Shapiro's office. I think the orchestration of this sequence is really nice, where we have Jim holding the shotgun because it's like one of the few times that we see Jim with a shotgun, first of all, yeah. but like walking around alert with a gun in his hand. It's like kind of out of step with his whole thing. And it's really interesting how it's shot. And then he comes into this room with the shotgun, which is full of goons as well as Shapiro. And then he tosses it to one of the goons and says, I want to make a deal. Yes. He's like, I just stopped by to drop off one of your toys and then make a deal. And, oh, the power play of just handing the shotgun over. Oh. And it immediately undercuts that, like, oh, Jim is, like, getting serious walking yeah, out with yeah. a gun. So he gets rid of it as soon as he can. Yes. Uh, he has the poker chip kit, um, and he'll trade it for, for Theta. Gandhi, once he is uh, uh, taken to the correct area, makes uh, our tough-talking goon get into some kind of large cleaning machine that has, a like, an electronic door thing. Uh, it's this big drum, so it has this, like, uh, big round door that opens up, and he forces the guy to get in, and then, uh, you know, locks him in for the duration. So, a couple things here. Like, we have this, the previous uh, goon being claustrophobic, right? Caught in, uh, trapped in a trunk of a car. Like, that's such a movie thing mm-hmm. that it doesn't feel, like, even if somebody says they're claustrophobic... I have to actually spend some time envisioning myself trapped in the trunk of a car to get that, right? Yeah. But this door closing, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> like this is this more a more visceral like, wow, you are trapped forever. I literally had myself thinking about what it would be like to be that actor mm-hmm. in that scene. <laughs> like and you guys are gonna let me out, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was just kind of horrifying. He has a really good tough guy line as he gets in there too. Oh yeah. There'll be another day or something like that. Yeah. He is, he's in Gandhi's power, but he does not uh, give up any fear like the, the, uh, you know, the guy in the trunk did. Yeah. And this is the guy who got in the car with Rockford, right? Like this is the, the car jacker. Yeah. Yeah. So we're cutting back and forth between Jim in the office and Gandhi down uh, on the floor. So Jim uh, says that he'll, he wants to make this trade because he wants to get cut in on the action Mm -hmm. poker chip scam. That's, that's big business. He wants in 50, 50 and Shapiro's like, how would you do it? Right? Like what's, uh, what's your, what's your expertise here? And Jim lays out a fairly convincing to me as someone who does not know casino gambling at all line about, you know, going into casinos and going to the high turnover tables. And he's using like certain slang words and yeah, dropping fake hundreds and taking real fives or something like that. And all the casinos that he would go to and all that stuff. His plan is to give them, give them a hundred dollar chip to, to get the change, bet the five and then walk away with the 95. <laughs> doesn't matter where he wins or not. This hundred dollar, right. 
bogus chip became $95 worth of real chips. And he's he specifically, he's like, when there's a convention in town, so there's a lot of action going on. Hmm. And uh, all of it sounds like a really good scheme to me. Uh, but Jim is aiming too low. Right. As uh, Shapiro's like, what What could you get from that? Yeah. Maybe 50, 75 grand. Like, I don't kill people for that little money. Yeah. To be fair... I don't either. <laughs> uh, his plan is to hit the cashier's cages. That's where the real money is. But to do that, you need the fluorescent dye codes uh, and other accoutrement. It's good for a million, and I don't need a partner. Uh, um, I mean, this is all just to keep them talking, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, while Gandhi finds uh, finds data. Yeah, there's, there's a plan afoot here, and I didn't catch that right away. So uh, Gandhi does find Theta in a hamper. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she, she is gagged, but otherwise she is, she is okay. Uh, it is left pretty unseen and unsaid what happened to her. Uh, in the next shot, we see that she has like a split lip um, yeah. and like a bruise on her mouth. But other than that, it is totally off screen, whatever happened to get the, uh, you know, get the information that they wanted, uh, out of her. So, so here's my, here's my rant. Hmm. Thank God this is a Rockford Files. <laughs> I feel like a modern show would not blink. They would say, oh, it'd be more important to have her dead here mm-hmm. as as motivation for our dudes. And uh, I'm so bored with that. <laughs> There's other baggage involved in all that as well. Even if it wasn't just motivation for two dudes, it, even if it's, you know, if genders were swapped around and whatever, mm-hmm. the way characters just get killed so that we can move forward with things. To, to create stakes for other characters, yeah. I far prefer this situation where we don't have to lose the character. We can have more scenes with the character in uh, following this and whatnot. And also, we've already had these stakes. The stakes were already there. There's no reason to escalate this. That wouldn't actually escalate the stakes. Uh, yeah. It also would rob us of our final scene, which would be a shame. Yeah. It also would turn the story from one... Because from here out, uh, the, the rest of the drama here involves Gandhi. I mean, he is using violence. But he is protecting mm-hmm. Theta. And if he was avenging Theta, that would be like a totally... Yeah. I don't want to watch that story either. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That, I mean, that's just my rant. It's just that, like, I feel like... Uh, Stop killing people. Yeah. Like, if you don't need to kill them, don't. You have a more interesting story. Done. Back in the office, Jim, uh, as I as I phrase it in my notes, he, I think he lets them intimidate him, right? Yeah. Okay, now they're gonna intimidate me and beat me up a little bit to get me to tell them where the where the uh, kid is, mm-hmm. which he does, and he says, "Well, it's in it's it's in the trunk of the limo with your guy, whoever, whatever the whippy guy's name was." And now we see a Shapiro commit a classic blunder. <laughs> so he has a room full of goons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he sends the goons one at a time to go get the kit. We see Gandhi sees our first goon heading out to go to the limo. He has Theta stay inside. He leaves. And then he comes back and waves at her. And when we go outside, the goon is crumpled on the ground unconscious. Yes. Back upstairs, that guy should have come back by now. So Shapiro sends another guy. And sure enough, he also gets Gandied. Um... <laughs> 
like I said, I didn't cop to what was happening in the beginning. Like I didn't see that Rockford had a plan. Mm. I was too excited about the criminal's plan <laughs> to see what Rockford's was. I don't know what, but I'm right. Is Rockford feeding them to Gandhi? And then my next slide is, I think he is. <laughs> so they're down to two goons. but and, and Jim's like juicing this by being like, you know, that's a very viable kid if that, you know, yeah. if someone just took it and ran, like that kind of thing. Yeah. But Shapiro orders his guys to blow Jim away and then run him through the lint cleaner before they, uh, before they go uh, recover the item. And that is when Gandhi bursts in ready to save his friend Jim. And now we have our goon with the shotgun that Jim brought in and gave to him. He levels <laughs> it at Gandhi, pulls the trigger, and it is unloaded. Uh, Jim and Gandhi spring back into action, uh, get the upper hand quickly, and um, Jim uh, says, so uh, now can we call the cops? And Gandhi <laughs> sent Theta to the gas station to call them already. Yes. He's come around on that on that point, which I think is also symbolic of, of Gandhi kind of... Uh, a new leaf. A new leaf, under understanding that there's some things he can't solve by his by himself, yeah. like that kind of stuff. Uh, Shapiro blusters about how they, they won't be able to prove anything, and uh, I think we end with the strong implication that justice will be served, as Jim says, that they'll get you for Moran's murder sooner or later. Mm-hmm. We cut to Jim on the phone with Gandhi. Jim and Theta are in Theta's apartment. Gandhi is at, is at the Mercury Club, wearing extremely fancy threads. And sporting a uh, half-smoked cigar in his free hand. And Jim is saying that they haven't settled up. Gandhi still owes him, right? Two grand plus expenses. That's that's, uh, 10 days worth of work. I don't know if we actually witnessed 10 days worth of work, but it's certainly what they agreed on. Right. Gandhi said that he would pay him that before he said i'll give you 10 percent of my 25 percent yeah but gandhi said that it's all good he signed a seven-year contract for theta with this uh record company jim's going to be getting his 10 percent of uh gandhi's 25 percent what is there to worry about but jim <laughs> needs the money now <laughs> he's out of money now so he just wants his cash but no gandhi spent the two grand on buying half of the publishing rights to theta songs Th- that could be worth a million easy of course, Jim is, uh, you know, not going to get any any money out of this. Yeah. Another classic maneuver. But he invites them to come meet the man. Uh, he's down at the bar right now. They just sa- signed the paperwork. And, uh, well, if he's buying. Yeah, it's all you're going to get. So Jim and Theta head to the club to meet Gandhi and this record executive. We have a shot of Gandhi counting hundreds onto the table and saying, just wait till you meet Theta. She's even prettier than she sounds. Cut to... Uh, Angel. (laughs) Angel and his wide lapels and his sunglasses and doors. My notes at the end of this, I I really, I just have, this is perfect. This is so perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This final scene is delicious in so many ways, but... Rockford coming in and and Angel realizing that Rockford's coming in. Right. And the the visual exchanges between the two of them. It's so good. So before they come in, Angel's trying to leave. He says he has to go. He has to get to Austin. That's in Texas for the Frampton gig. (laughs) But he is not able to leave before Jim and Theta walk up. And yeah, just this body language and glance exchange. Because Rockford doesn't say anything immediately. Yeah. He's going to juice it, right? Like, he's going to yeah. he's gonna get Angel into maximum squirm. And so once they're all sitting and Gandhi introduces this him as this executive, mm-hmm. Jim says, You've just been conned by the worst in the business. 
And then Angel tries to blame Rockford. Yeah. This whole thing was set up by Jim, and he was just playing playing this role. And so Gandhi looks at Jim, you trying to scam me? <laughs> and that's when uh, Angel jumps over the back of the bent of the, uh, they're in like a, like a booth. So he jumps mm-hmm. over the back of the booth and tries to run away. And so Gandhi then uh, springs into action and chases him. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Uh, it's, it is a delicious little dessert at the end of this uh, meal of an episode. Jim starts laughing as Gandhi runs. And I'm pretty sure that this was just a straight up James Garner cracking up watching this happen. Like, this looks like a break to me. Yeah. And goes, don't worry, Gandhi won't hurt him bad. And then we have Jim and Theta sitting in this booth. Jim picks up the stack of hundreds, gets a big smile. Should we start with some wine? And we freeze frame on him snapping his fingers for the waiter uh, with the big, the big Garner smile. So this, okay, we've, we've come through the abyss to the other side, <laughs> mm-hmm. where we have a scene in a restaurant around money. But we're both in our comfort <laughs> zones here. With with Angel failing to run a scam. Yes. Jim triumphant. I, I can't in good conscience say that Rockford ends up with that money, right? Because there's right. still Angel and Gandhi in play. But we could say he at least has a wonderful meal out of that situation. Right. right? He will spend Gandhi's money on a meal yeah. while Gandhi is chasing Angel. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's the money he's owed, right? That's Gandhi's right. $2,000. So <laughs> I, we might be able to say that he pulled off 2000 but perhaps not the expenses. Probably not the expenses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there is our, the, the final chapter of the Gandhi, uh, the Gandhi saga. Yeah. They did apparently want to get Isaac Hayes back for one of the movies in the 90s. But oh, yeah? he was so busy with South Park at the time oh. that they couldn't fit him into the shooting schedule. That's a shame. I know, right? <laughs> so, you know, as an episode of The Rockford Files, this is a solid entry. Oh, yeah. Elevated by the presence of this iteration of Gandhi. Yes. Sure, he's he, he he punches, but only when it really matters. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's this is the Gandhi who beats up a bar full of Nazis. Yes, which is what happened in in uh, for those who have not seen it. Uh, there is a g- fantastic scene in just another Polish wedding where Gandhi and uh, Gabby beat up a, a bar full of Nazis. Ultimately, I think that's the pivot point here in this uh, in our discussion, right? Like. I think the the Hammer of Block C is a really good episode on its own, hitting on these dark themes. Mm-hmm. It's it's a darker character study yeah. kind of episode. And it's twisting the audience in good ways so that you end up in this rather emotional end, uh, complex emotional end. You spend the time in that episode getting to like this character to find out that this character wasn't paying close enough attention to the fact that they have become the villain, right? Yeah. And that's great. I think that that's a a well-done story uh, and it's a worthy story. But then they have this problem that they have this character that they like and they have these two other stories. It's hard to take that character and put them in these two other stories and still retain that original Mm. tale, right? Right. But if you depend upon the fact that TV at the time was somewhat uh, ephemeral, Mm -hmm. you could pull it off. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could just forget that part 
and continue on with the, the the other parts. There's kind of an interesting thing here that I think you're getting at, which is, so that first episode was written as an episode of The Rockford Files, and then separately they cast Isaac Hayes as yes. the character of Gandalf Fitch. After that, they were writing the character of Gandalf Fitch as played by Isaac Hayes. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that, like, only he could play this character, but it's kind of, I think that that gets to, like, how that original one was written as its own story, and whoever was playing that character, that's the the story of that character. But because they got someone that they wanted to come back, right, then Mm -hmm. that's the, how do we move forward? And then they use the stories to enhance the the more uh, entertaining qualities of the character because it's not like he's a totally different character right, uh, right I think it's very much we're just counting on the audience to not remember slash letting everyone just kind of forget about his past as as alighted in the early part of this episode I really like I enjoyed watching this episode it is there's a lot of like there's a lot of good humor in it. Seeing the dynamic, the the Gandhi Jim dynamics, great. The Angel Jim dynamic, of course, is always fantastic. The payoff yeah. at the end is like one of the great payoffs because yeah. yeah. it's literally first scene, last scene connecting, right? Like, uh, and how Angel doesn't know who Gandhi is, Gandhi doesn't know how who Angel is, and you've completely forgotten that by the time you get to the end. It's great. Uh, but then it puts me as a as an audience member who's invested in the show in the position of like, do I hold two Gandhis in my head? Right. The the flawed uh, villain Gandhi who does come to a realization, and then there's the fun Gandhi. Uh, do I connect them with you know headcanon? As he does demonstrate positive behavior in this episode, so has he turned that corner? Has he changed how he interacts with other people in order to be a more positive force in the world? And that's kind of up to me, right? Like, it exists, but it does not impinge on my enjoyment of the character, which is kind of where I'm at because I really like the character and, you know... How you feel is how you feel. It's a it's an interesting dynamic um, that I think is totally being read into this whole thing by me. That is not part of the text of this character. Yeah, I mean that that's the dynamic of what's going on here. We don't we're just audience members enjoying a show yeah. who uh, have to figure that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes that's complex. Yeah. So all that said, I mean, I think it was super. I think it was it was really interesting. You know, watching these back to back. I don't think there's like a satisfactory conclusion that I can draw no. about the questions we were asking at the end of the last episode, uh, both because I don't think that's the point of this episode. Yeah. And, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. I think fundamentally that's uh, what I see here is that on its own, the hammer of block C is a thing. Uh, and then as a whole, the other two make their own dynamic that's v- different from that. For a final point of discussion, the title of this episode, which is Second Chance. Right. What is what is that referring to? There's definitely a thing in the show that it refers to, right? Like, uh, it's the program that gets Joe out of jail early. Right, right. That's the Second Chance program. Yeah, which is probably a pipeline to Shapiro's goon squad. Yeah. And I think that's, cl- that's in the dialogue at some point that that's yeah. where he's getting his, his underpaid uh, workers and his goons. 
And there's obviously Theta's second chance at a career. She mm-hmm. had a career at some point or uh, the, the makings of a career uh, before um, Joe went in. But yeah, I mean, is Gandhi have a second chance here? Is that what's happening? I mean, it only it only applies to Gandhi if you include the first episode yeah. as his backstory. Yes. <laughs> Maybe it's just it's a good title for this episode because of those reasons you mentioned. And it just happens to be resonant with uh, the hammer of, of C-Block. Who knows? Who's to say? But, uh, you know, that's the power. The power of good storytelling is it gives us a lot of these things to chew on and and think about and also consider for when we're telling our own stories. How do you responsibly present a character who is a villain (laughs) who who goes through some kind of character change? Uh, There are ways to do it that are ineffective and will not create the emotional response you want. And there are ways to do it that are effective. And teasing those out, I think, is part of our ongoing journey as storytellers. So that's what I have to say about that. (laughs) Do you have any other thoughts, conclusions, or uh, meditations on Second Chance and or the the Gandhi character uh or uh rockfish <laughs> and his relationship to uh to all of this i think we covered it all pretty well i would say that uh ultimately all three of these episodes really work in in different ways in different ways yeah 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 in, in like vastly different ways too like uh we mentioned just another polish wedding a few mm-hmm. times here but the main thing about that one is that it wasn't about Rockford at all. Right. You know, it was a uh, backdoor pilot. It was an attempt to make Gabby and Gandhi a thing. And uh, that was really interesting, too. I, You know, like, mm-hmm. I think each of these episodes has really interesting things going on, in addition to being just sheer entertainment. Right. Down to the um, that J turn in the alleyway or, you know, like there's there's spectacle, there's humor, there's drama, there's, you know, all of that. I guess that's the pleasant note I'd like to leave it on. (laughs) I think that's a a good place to end it. Well, we will go off to the uh, to the music lounge and count out our hundreds um, (laughs) as uh, we have made our two hundred dollars for this day. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this journey uh, that that we took ourselves on as we <laughs> dove into into Gandhi. Super, super interesting stuff. But while we may be done talking about Gandhi, there's much more to talk about in the show. So we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. 